Well, good morning, Saints. Today is November 25th, 2018. We have had some excellent sermons here, some excellent services lately. Last week was Shimming the Foundation. Man, if you haven't already listened to it again, then you need to get on it. You need to keep listening to that one. We learned to resurrect God's promise rather than to try to reinterpret them. On Wednesday night, we heard a great word from Nolan. Yes. Dying for unity. We learned to crucify toxic independence and stand with those who are righteous. This morning, we're going to focus on fine-tuning. Everybody say fine-tuning. Fine-tuning the faith of Abraham. We're going to do that with examples from Abraham's natural and spiritual descendants found within the nation of Israel. We're going to learn from the geography of Israel, which is still promised to the Israeli people to this day. We will also be benefited by Israel as an example, as if we were adopted younger brothers, learning from the example of our bloodline older brothers. Amen. Let's go to Genesis 16, verse 1. You know what to say when you get there. Aki. Aki. <laughs> Justin Johnson. Yeah, one association conference has given us a plethora of other examples. Plethora. So Genesis 16.1. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian maidservant named Hagar. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my maidservant. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Mm. Mm. Abram agreed to what Sarah said and equally. Mm. So after Abram had been living in Canaan 10 years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian maidservant, Hagar, and gave her to her husband to be his wife. As we look at this decision, it is necessary to back up, clear away 4,000 years of preaching and postulating, and examine how Abram arrived at this place because everybody makes these mistakes. The truth is, is that the men you see before us, that we've made these mistakes. Yeah, the additional truth is you, you make these mistakes regularly. In Genesis 12, the Lord had told Abram that he would inherit the land, given him a heptatic blessing, and that the whole world would be blessed through Abram. We also see in Genesis 13, the Lord told Abram that he would inherit the land with his offspring forever. Meaning he and his children would have to be resurrected. To gain some additional insight into this whole structure, we're going to pick up today in Genesis 15 and see how the mistakes of Abraham are mistakes that we are still making today. When I talked about Hagar, the only Egyptian in the room dropped all of his stuff. (laughs) And I think it's because the beautiful little Swiss miss next to him's Claws dug into his uh, thigh. (laughs) This feels like such an extraordinary mistake until you examine what was present at the time that he made it. And then you start to realize how prevalent it is even among the people of God. Are you in Genesis 15? Let's begin in the first verse. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. We've already said a mouthful there. The word of the Lord is the Debar Yahweh. It it really doesn't get any better than that. It didn't come through the uh, function of his ears. He did not hear the word of the Lord. He saw the word of the Lord. 
In some kind of way, Abraham was saved exactly as you and I are saved. He had a perception that goes beyond the senses of the reality of what God was expressing, and he believed it, which you're going to see. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield and your very great reward. What is it about our God that is always telling us not to be afraid? It's as if he understands what you are made of. If, as if he understands where your insecurities are and he's trying to address them while you are spending all of your time trying to act like you don't have them. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? That's an interesting question from a man who has just perceived the very word of Yahweh God. He's just felt it, seen it, experienced it in some kind of way. And what is his question? What can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eleazar of Damascus. Do you see how his questioning God has led him to an extraordinary assumption? Nowhere in the scripture up to this point has it been said that Eleazar would inherit the estate. But he has already assumed that this must be what is going to occur because he believes what God has already said to him. God has said to him that he would inherit this land. God has said to him that it would be through his offspring. And since he could see no offspring, he jumped to the conclusion that it must be through Eleazar of Damascus. Since let that sink in for a minute. The deceptions that plague the people of God are not that you out and out don't believe God's word. It's that because you believe God's word, you have drawn incorrect conclusions that God never said. Come on, somebody say, he never said Eleazar. He never said Eleazar. But nevertheless, Abraham assumed it. And the longer you assume something, the more invested you become in that. And Abraham said, you have given me no children. That almost sounds accusatory. So a servant in my household will be my heir. Do you hear how Abraham is having to work this out? You're told to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. All of you claim to be open to the leading of the Lord. All of you that you hold the word of God in its highest place. And yet, you don't know where you have false assumptions that you've invested in that are keeping you from understanding the truth. We need the Lord to uproot these from us. And Abram actually gets to the place where he's like, you told me offspring and you didn't give me any offspring, so it must be this. Now, before you see Abram as insolent, take a good look in your mirror. How many things did God never actually say to you that you've assumed and you've taken your stand on despite everything else? There's some public examples, right? The Lord does that publicly to help us get it right privately. The worst thing that you can do is act like what you said you heard from God and were clearly wrong about was right all along and you've just failed to understand it. The best thing you can do is own up to it. <laughs> Harder to hear from God than I thought. Amen. That's something God can work with. Amen. We can all receive further revelation. What you're battling with are revelations that didn't actually come from God that are entrenched. Then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir. Don't you love when the Lord's that direct? Yes. Yes. He must have had a soft heart to be able to hear that. 
But a son coming from your own body will be your heir. Somebody say, from your body. From your body. He took him outside and said, look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. Let's look at a few attributes of what we see here about Abram. First of all, Abram was born again. Are you born again? Yes. Come on, let me ask again. Are you born again? Yes. Amen. So we're talking to you today. And he also received a calling. Have you received a calling? Yes. Amen. Abram had questions and embedded assumptions. So what comes along with being born again, what comes along with receiving a calling is that you're going to have questions and you're going to have embedded assumptions. Not one believer is exempt of having these. An additional thing the Lord spoke to Abram was a son coming from your own body. God clarified his promises so that he could remove these embedded assumptions in Abram. So let's put ourselves into the position of having the illusion of the very first time that you don't know where this story is going and you're sitting there. Doesn't Sariah's solution seem to be acceptable? It's within the social norms. It doesn't seem to contradict anything that the Lord has actually said. The word he received seemed to coincide with the proposed solution. The embedded assumption. Say that with me. Embedded Embedded assumption. assumption. All right, I had a 70% there. Let's do it again. Embedded Embedded assumption. assumption that the heir was the real problem here that needed to be solved. Abram assessed the situation and he decided, well, this all seems to hinge right here. So therefore, I must engage and fix this problem. I mean, how, could not it, how couldn't you join with me to try to fix this problem? It's so obvious. Be careful that what is obvious to us is not actually an embedded assumption. It seemed that this proposal satisfied this. His embedded assumption became an invested assumption. He became invested in this idea and it was necessary. He felt that it was necessary to fulfill his calling. It all hinges right here. Boy, I better walk this out on my own because this is the answer. Come on, church. I know that you are preparing for a a good message today and you're ready for this to build to a crescendo and have an impact at the end. And oh yeah, it'll do that too. But you have to understand this principle right now that we all walk around with so many embedded assumptions that hang around long enough that they become invested assumptions in us. Man, God speaks to us here in this church. He speaks to us. The truth is, is he speaks to us so much. Sometimes we can't even keep track of it. You don't even remember really what he said the last time because you're just expecting him to say it again to you. And because of that, we treat it lightly. And we walk around with some assumptions that the Lord will break in this place today. I love this. I feel like there should be a meme here. What God said and what you heard. You know, it's like that scene in Dumb and Dumber where, you know, what are the chances that a girl like me and a guy like you, you got even that backwards, have a chance? She said about one in a million. What he heard is there is a chance. This is what it's like when charismatic Christians get excited. We want to hear from the Lord. So we keep notebooks full of prophecies, and you should. And then you go back through your prophecies and all of your deductive reasoning determining how God is going to bring this about, but he's never brought a prophecy about in that way. Not not ever. 
Never have people sat around and with deductive reasoning gone A plus B equals C so we know this is what God will do and gotten it right. Never. Prophecy is best viewed in the rear view mirror. It's best viewed so that when God has accomplished something, you can look and go, ah, this is what he was always aiming at and he's been working on it. But when you take your prophecy and you set forward to aim, what happens if you're aiming at the wrong thing? So I want to give you an example here. The Lord clearly, clearly actually spoke to my wife and told us that our days were numbered, but more specifically mine. There were some very specific things that he told us. What we added to that, what we didn't feel like we were embellishing, we didn't feel like we were adding to it, seemed like the most natural conclusion was that we should live like we have about five years. Of course, we're now seven or eight years into that. We were clearly wrong. Did God do good things through it? Sure. That doesn't mean we weren't wrong. Do you understand what I'm saying? Through the very best of intentions, you end up adding to what God said, and the whole direction of your life can be run askew in that way. A man with pastoral giftings can believe that he's a pastor and he is no pastor. He has pastoral giftings because he's supposed to assist pastors. A man with a teaching gifting can assume that he is the male version of Joyce Myers. John Myers, yeah. Or some other twisted perception such as that. And his whole life go astray because of it. Our embedded assumptions that add to or alter what God actually said are dangerous. The longer we hold on to them, the more invested in them we become. The truth is you no longer remember the actual experience, but you've been quoting it a certain way so long that you actually have now believed That it's what God said, even though if there were a tape recorder in the room, that's not what it would have captured. The invested assumption dramatically complicates your ability to hear from God. Because you think you already know what he wants to say. As a quick example here, I had a dinner last night with a couple that I love as much, if not more, than any other in this church. It was John and Joy Dang. And if you don't love them as much or more... Than any other couple in this church, you just don't know them that well. We've spent more than 11 years of our life together, and I was laying out for John and Joy what I believe the Lord, you hear that? Believe the Lord has said to me regarding ministering elders in this church. And I see in John teaching ability, I see in John evangelistic ability, and yet, somehow or another, I do not believe John is called to go and start his own church. As I began to explain this in the way in which I believe that John and Joy in the years to come are ministering elders that the church is actually built upon as they're a kind of liaison between the pastors wherever they are in the world and the body and they're ministering and teaching and doing the things that God called them to do. As I began to explain this, John rubbed his forehead and looked at me and goes, that's freeing. The reason he felt like it was freeing is because we had been aiming at something that was not God's design for his life. And I'm the one that pointed him in that direction. All I knew how to do when John came in this ministry was raise up pastors. That's all I knew how to do. So I assumed when I saw pastoral gifting, he was a pastor. When in fact, he is something that pastors graduate into. 
When we set aside the pulpit, we will pick up as ministering elders. And that's where John and Joy are headed in this church, as ministering elders. The reason I'm telling you this is, that was not only not a shot to his ego. All of the sudden, a rock in his spiritual shoe got removed. There had been an irritant and he didn't know why. There had been something just not quite right and he didn't know why. And suddenly it fit well. See, when you remove an embedded assumption... You remove friction and contention from you and the body that God put you in. It's yeah. a good word. Well, Pastor Eric is being extremely vulnerable with his weaknesses. So that along with him, we can be examples for you guys. One thing in light of prophecy is that this morning, while worship is going on, Miss Joe, I think you're like a hundred for a hundred on this. Your batting average is a thousand. What she prophesied is today's message. As she is speaking it, all three of us are looking at each other and going, there it is again. It's absolute confirmation that this word is not just for John and Joy Dang. This word is for every single person that's listening or watching this message right now. That there are embedded assumptions like that rock in the shoe that's affecting the way that you walk and follow the Lord. Let's look at a few more things about uh, these embedded assumptions. Number one, the choices. Say choices with me. Choices. The choices feel feet apart. Just feet apart. Hagar and Sarai lived in the same house. A lot of times, I'm sure they're just feet apart from each other. However, the paths, say paths. Paths. They lead you down or miles apart. Come on, the end destination of the offspring of Sarai and the offspring of Hagar are miles apart. This is a flesh reliance in one and a spirit reliance in the other. Third, the results. Say results. Results. So we had choices passed. Now results are kingdoms apart. Islam versus the kingdom promised to the Jewish people. Uh, I don't want you to just fly past that. The choices feel feet apart. The paths they lead you down are miles apart. And the results are kingdoms apart. As far away as the restored kingdom to Israel and an Islamic pedophile prophet enslaving the world. That's crazy. Good word. Come on, let's move to the Constitution of Israel contained in the book of Deuteronomy. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 30. And we're going to start in verse 15. Amen. Deuteronomy chapter 30 and verse 15. The word of God says this. See, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. For I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways and to keep His commands, decrees, and laws. Then, come on, somebody say then. Then. You will live and increase. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are entering to possess. Boy, it's amazing how many times the land is a part of this promise. You cannot separate the land from the people, from the plan. If you do, you have some other type of heresy that you're holding on to. And here we see, notice that it says, I set before you today... Life and death. If you set something before someone, boy, didn't we have some things set before us 
on Thursday, you had a, a plethora, a, re- a veritable cornucopia of options before you. Smorgasbord. A smorgasbord. You had all kinds of things that were set before you. Let me ask you this. When you set something before somebody, isn't the point to put it within feet of each other? You have the dessert table. You have the... This is exactly what the Lord does through Moses here. He puts life and death and he sets it right in front of them in the same proximity. You could say that he makes a choice. He sets a choice before them that is merely feet apart. The paths that these choices lead to, the paths that they begin to walk down are miles apart from each other. Life, death, prosperity, destruction. And the results of walking down these paths put you in separate kingdoms. They're kingdoms apart. Can we say the stakes are high? Stakes are high. Do you want to get it right? Yes. Yes. Then let's look at verse 17. But if your heart turns away and you are not obedient, and if you are drawn away to bow down to other gods and to worship them, I declare to you this day that you will certainly be destroyed. You will not live long in the land you are crossing the Jordan to enter and to possess. When the word says, if your heart turns away, put yourself in Abraham's shoes in the previous example. Do you think Abram thought his heart was turning away? I don't think he thought that at all. In fact, he thought it was necessary to further the call of God. He thought it was not contradicting what he had previously been told. But ironically, it did contradict the very next thing he would be told. See, when we presume God's will then we are at war with what he wants to reveal to us. How about the phrase, bow down to other gods and worship them? Abram, do you think he thought he was bowing down to other gods? But he had made an idol out of his embedded or invested assumption that an error was a problem that needed to be solved. In other words, God didn't tell him, you need to focus on this error and it not coming. And you need to figure out how you're going to fix that. God never directed him in that way. He said, look, look at the land. You're going to get it. And I'm going to give it to you and your offspring forever. He had these promises, but in his mind, he was thinking about the problem that stood between him and the promise. And he wrongly assessed it. He assessed the problem as I need an heir. I need to be a pastor. I need to receive glory and stand on a stage in limelight. I need a certain job. I need this person to agree with me. Whatever you have assessed the problem as. See, that becomes an enemy of what God has actually called you to do. Would Abram have ever known that the choices standing only feet apart, meaning Hagar and Sarah, We treat Hagar like she's a bad person. You know, she was probably a beautiful person. Probably an amazing person. She was put in a terrible situation. Both women agreed to this. All three parties agreed to it. It seemed right. As pastor said, it was not out of the social norm. They're standing feet apart. But they travel down paths that are miles apart. And they end up producing Kingdoms that are worlds apart as far away as the descendants of Ishmael and the descendants of Isaac. All because of an embedded, invested assumption. You know, we serve a God that can see our problems a lot better than we can, right? 
So there just comes a point in time we have to shut our mind off, close our mouth, and just believe what God says. Well, let's pick up in verse 19, and let's see some of the opportunities that God gives us. He says, this day I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God. Listen to his voice and hold fast to him. Amen. For the Lord is your life. Yeah. When you're standing there in the midst of a problem that you are not able to rightly assess and you've now been led by the Holy Ghost to recognize that you don't assess it correctly. Begin with the standpoint that the Lord is your life. And as we go on in this verse, and he will give you many years in the land. He swore to give to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The problem in the Garden of Eden was that man wanted to distinguish good from evil without dependence on God. This passage is like the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Right here, in close proximity, what God says to you is life, what you do with it, may be death and cursing. Come Come on, on. somebody, think through that. So how do we choose life? Haven't you ever been there like in the garden where you want to take a shortcut? Has anybody ever taken a shortcut to anything? Isn't our problem is that we're always trying to take the shortcut? Yes. We route our phones to teach us the shortest, quickest way. We write our lives in the same fashion. We're trying to get there. And if I could just eat a piece of fruit and have the knowledge, the understanding to be able to distinguish good from evil, I would rather take that. But the Word of God gives us how to choose life. Look at verse 20. It's still on your screen. At that, you may love the Lord your God. We have to love the Lord our God more than any embedded or invested assumption. See, we don't think about it in these terms. We don't realize that our assumptions become idolatrous in our life. No, we don't, we don't put it above the Lord now. We would never do that, but we sure don't mind putting it right beside what he said. Might even make it to where, because I love the Lord, this has to be true. Because if this weren't true, I don't think I would love the Lord anymore. We have to love the Lord our God more than your assumption, more than you think that you need to get there, more than that shortcut that you're trying to take. You must love the Lord your God. The second thing it says right here, listen to His voice. More than investing in what you already think. Now, you may have never done this, but there are times... They've done it. They've done it. When you'll begin to listen to someone and think that you already have what they mean to say. No, 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 no. I got it. I got it. I got it. No, I'm fine. No, I I haven't said an entire sentence to you yet. I will instruct my children, the Sutherlands, and I will say, Gabriel, I want you to go do something. And he's starting to leave the room before I've given him instructions. (laughs) Thank you for what you are trying to have quick obedience, but you don't know what I want you to do yet. (laughs) I hope you heard it the first time. (laughs) 
We actually have to listen to His voice. Amen. I can't tell you how many times I'm sitting with someone and they begin to speak and we begin to talk and I try to say something and they cut me off and try to respond. Be quiet. Don't say another word. Because you don't know what I'm trying to say. I'm actually going to help you if you'll just shut up. That's a good word. If it's like that between you and I, how much more is it like that and how we respond to the Father? Oh, I got it. You're going to start quoting the scripture? I'm going to show you how much I know. I'm going to help finish the scripture for you. Just shut up. Just listen to his voice. And the third thing it says here is that you must hold fast to him. Come on, somebody say hold fast. Hold Hold fast. fast. Here's what we're to hold fast to. Not what we think he will do through us or for us. We cannot be idolatrous and holding on to our assumptions. This is a liberating word for us in this place today. If you will actually listen, if you will actually love the Lord your God, if you will listen to Him, and if you will hold fast to this teaching, it is going to set you free here today. Come on, anybody want to get set free today? Yes. Yeah. Now, if you knew it was an assumption, you wouldn't be holding on to it. The problem is, is that you identify an assumption as something that God said. You're going to have to go back. You're going to have to examine what he actually said. And I'm going to encourage you. A notebook full of prophecies other people gave you, that's, that's not good enough. What did he say to you? And be careful, because charismatics have a way of talking for 35 minutes saying the Lord said, when in reality, he said something like, you are fighting for the wrong side. See, I know what it is to be addressed audibly from the heavens by God and pushed to the floor. When I tell that story, it takes an hour. It actually took like three seconds. But the impression that it made on me is is incredible. Distinguishing between the impressions that I had and what God actually said are difficult things. So let me tell you how he helped Abraham with it, and it might might help you. So if in chapter 16, Abram conceived a child that he wasn't supposed to conceive with a woman that he wasn't supposed to conceive it with, what do you think chapter 17 of Genesis is about? Let's introduce circumcision. Let's give you a little pain in that one place that keeps leading you in the wrong area. All joking aside, the concept here is that you have to remember the importance of God's covenant when you're talking about birthing anything. Whether it's a ministry, a mezuzah, a a people group, God's covenant and what he actually said is everything. You're not allowed to extrapolate. And we all do it. Somebody say, we all do it. We We all all do do it. it. Somebody say, I do it. I I do do it. it. Now we're getting right. In chapter 21, this continues. God graciously solves what was never a problem for him. The heir situation. But remember, it was the biggest issue in Abraham's mind. It made him full of assumptions that were embedded, such as a suggestion for Eleazar and Hagar. He wrongly invested in what God had not actually said. We see this just maybe monthly in every one of our lives in finances, right? Yeah. Years have been spent, 
decades for some of us in this room of God supernaturally providing finances month after month, if not day after day, giving us what we need for gas and food and even some of the things that we enjoy. But yet for somehow, in some, some way, today is different than the decades of him proving himself to us. And that God actually steps in and solve a problem that was never a problem for him. It was always just an embedded and invested problem in us. Yeah. Think about it further. In Genesis 22, God frees Abraham from the idolatry of invested assumptions by the sacrifice on Mount Moriah. The promised son was always God's problem to solve, not Abram's. The thing that Abram thought that he was supposed to do, the thing that caused the assumption in this first place, the truth is, is that was God's job. And he put it upon himself to make it his job. See, I don't think they're getting it, Pastor. The biggest problem Abram had in his life was that he believed the heir was a problem. So God gives him a mark on the very thing that causes heirs to come into the world. Then he gives him a son, and then he says, now you go kill that son. He is teaching Abram that his assumption was the problem. God never had a problem providing even if he raised him from the dead. So tell me, what do you think is standing between you and the fulfillment of God's will in your life? Is it actually something that God's pointed to? Or do you just have ambitions that God didn't speak to you? The enemy of what you need to learn is what you think you already know. If you boil down what God himself has spoken to you and start from there, it's a useful process. But I got to tell you, most people won't do that. The assumptions that they make are based on the books that they read. And the more that they read, the more invested in their assumption they are. But did God say it to you? I've been teaching revelation that God gave to me for years. I can tell you the difference between what I know to be true, what I hope and pray and think is true, and what I really don't know, but I want to present to you for your consideration. Can you do that? You need to be able to do that. And have you rightly assessed it or will God make you sacrifice it so that you can learn something? If he brought you to this place and you were saying, I'm open to learn, prove it. Demonstrate a mastery of what is being taught. As we continue on, we're going to further expand on this concept in the Naveen. Because everybody has the problem we're talking about. We do this. You do this. Let's pick up in Ezekiel. We're going to be in the 43rd chapter. Would you like to learn a lesson from Israel's geography? Yes. Yes. Amen. In Ezekiel 43, starting in verse 10. Son of man, describe the temple to the people of Israel. Whose idea is it to describe it? It's God's. Watch what he says it's going to do. That they may be ashamed of their sins. Are you kidding me? Describing a building could make somebody ashamed of their sins? If the building is designed by God, if it was carried out by men who saw into the heavens and built on earth what they saw in the heavens, if it is an example of the kingdom of God coming to the earth, yes, a building can make somebody ashamed of their sins. Let them consider the plan. And if they are ashamed of all they have done, make known to them the design of the temple and its arrangement, its exits 
and its entrances. Somebody say exits. Exits. And entrances. And entrances. See, if you are broken and contrite in your heart, God will reveal to you more and more of the plan. You're going to learn something even from the exits and entrances to the temple. Its whole design and all its regulation and laws. Write these down before them so that they may be faithful to its design and follow all of its regulations. The very design of the temple that God gave Israel and no other nation was extended or intended to teach them about sin and righteousness. Notice he drew their attention to what we repeated, to its exits and entrances. We have a picture that will help you to understand this. This is the remaining portion of the staircase leading into the temple complex from the west side. Can you do the next slide? We want to highlight two areas to you. Now these are remains, but if you can imagine, we're outside looking in. But if you can imagine for a moment that you're on the inside looking out. What you have here is you have the entrance on the right hand side. You're inward looking out. You see the entrance to your right. You see the exit to the left. It's kind of interesting. The entrance is about half the width when you compare it to the exit. A staircase, an entrance, an exit. What you're seeing there is half the size is compared the entrance to the exit. The temple structure and Jesus' words teach us exactly the same thing. Ezekiel is teaching us, consider, think about, Let me explain to you the structure of the building because you're supposed to get deep insight into your own sinful nature based on things like the entrance and the exit. Right now, if you can imagine, above those circles is the Al-Aqsa Mosque, the Dome of the Rock. And uh, that is a blight on humanity that that is there. If the temple were there and you were standing with your back to the temple looking outward, the exact opposite of this picture, what pastor is saying is that on your right, you would see an entrance and on your left, you would see an exit. It's the reverse of what is on the screen at the moment. Consider Jesus words then in Matthew seven and verse nine, which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone. Or if he asks for fish, we'll give him a snake. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So that in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. Enter through the narrow gate. Which gate? Narrow. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many, how many? Many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life. And only a few find it. Let's look at verse 9. Notice in verse 9 that we are to have a relationship of dependency on our father like children. Much in this regard. If my children come up to me and ask me for a cookie or a donut, I'm not going to give them a stone, but I may get them a keto cake or something low carb because that's also what I would eat. But the whole point is my children look to me to provide for them sustenance. Verse 12, doing unto others is an expression of the Torah and Naveen, not a replacement. 
That would be a false assumption that is dangerous to invest in. Do you get that? Boiling all of the Bible down to that one statement and then ignoring what it says because of that one statement is a dangerous assumption to invest in. It's meant to be an expression of the Torah and the Vim, not a replacement. And the end result is that you could end up in a separate kingdom. Yeah. Verse 14 is the point. The entrance into life is a small gate standing feet from the road that leads to destruction, just as we saw in the picture earlier. Come on, Christian. Good and evil are not a great distance apart from each other. They're found in the same tree. They're found in the responses to the same book. They're found in the entrances and exits to the same building. You need to hold fast to your Father above all else. It may be that the only a few will find the narrow will of God. Amen. Yeah. These things are close together. We think about them so far apart, but they are close together. The choices feel feet apart. The paths they go down are miles apart. And the results are surely kingdoms apart from each other. Let's take this same passage, but let's look at it in its parallel uh, place in Luke chapter 13. Turn there with us. Luke 13 in verse 24. Somebody say there when you're there. Don't give up on us. Are you there in the back of the room? Are you there on the left side of the room? See, nobody wants to be the left side. Like from which perspective, Pastor? It leads to death. Luke 13, verse 24. Make every effort to enter through the narrow door. How much effort? Every. See, you view this as a one-time thing, but how many times do they go to the temple? See, this was a daily part of life. It is a narrow thing for you to find truth. Everything in the world wars against it, including what you've already accepted as truth. Did God say it to you? Most of the time, people that are arguing this point are not arguing based on their revelation. They're arguing based on teaching they've received. That's a problem. And even if you're arguing arguing it based on a prophecy that you received... You need to consider something. You may not have understood it rightly. What is the primary way in which God will teach members of this congregation? Through the ministers that are ministering the word to you in this congregation. Otherwise, why bring you here? Okay, That's true for every one of you. That's not an arrogant statement. It is our function within the body. And we're working it out with fear and trembling. We really work hard to get this right. Make every effort to enter through the narrow door. Because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, Sir, open the door for us. See, desire is not enough. But he will answer, I don't know you or where you come from. Then you will say, we ate and drank with you. You taught in our streets. But he will reply, I don't know you or where you come from. Away from me, evildoers. Let's unpack that just a little bit, shall we? The embedded assumption is that eating with the Lord meant that you would inherit the kingdom, and that assumption was false. The embedded assumption was that drinking with the Lord meant that you would inherit his kingdom. And that was false. 
The embedded assumption was that listening to the Lord teach on the streets of Israel meant that you would inherit the kingdom, and that was false. Investing in false assumptions produces behavior the Lord calls evil while you think you were standing in righteousness. See, the entrance and the exit to the temple were on the same wall. They're right in proximity with each other. The blessings and the curses in the same book. The knowledge of good and evil in the same tree. It is very, very possible to be standing feet away from a disastrous choice and not know it. People that are deceived don't know when they are deceived. I I don't know about you, but I don't want to be feet away from a disastrous choice. I want to choose life. Let's go further in verse 28. There will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth. When you see who? Abraham. When you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the who? Prophets. In the kingdom of God. These are not some hypothetical allusion to someone or a spiritual allusion. This is a direct association with these men of God. But you yourselves thrown out. People will come from east, west, north, and south and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. Indeed, there are those who are last who will be first and first who will be last. Think about this. This Not rush past it. This is a very important point. Until we see Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the prophets in the kingdom of God on earth joined by feast participants from every direction who could ever believe in God is done with Israel as a nation. So the understanding is this, that if you disjoin the fathers of our faith, the prophets, from that feast participation, and you believe that God is done with Israel as a nation, it is a dangerous assumption. That we cannot make. Man, how many of you would like to have aged wine and the choicest of meats with Father Abraham? Yeah. With all of the prophets on a mountain inside of Israel. I'm talking about cholesterol-free beef, man. I'm talking about intoxicating wine that you don't get intoxicated with. The Jews have been looking forward to this for thousands of years. It is what their culture has preserved alongside the word, and Jesus affirms it as a cultural um, imperative that we ought to look forward to. Yeah, that's good. Second Samuel. Let's turn to Second Samuel chapter 18 and verse 18. Now the truth is, is what you just heard from, from Pastor Matt and Pastor Eric. Uh, that's part of what this church has been teaching for a long, long time. Please don't lose the import of what was just said. Oh yeah, we know that. Let's not, let's make sure that you don't have any assumptions even about those type of topics here in this church. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the prophets, and all those who would believe. This is an important piece of what we're teaching. The centrality of Israel, of the Jewish people in the specific land is an important thing. And this, in 2 Samuel 18, it actually shows us this. I want to show you this. 2 Samuel 18, 18. Are you there? says, during his lifetime, Absalom 
had taken a pillar and erected it in the king's valley as a monument to himself. For he thought. He thought. He had an assumption here. I have no sons to carry on the memory of my name. So he named the pillar after himself. Well, how rather magnanimous. And it is called Absalom's monument to this day. Now the word says how handsome Absalom was. The word talks about how articulate and how he could win over friends and influence people. Absalom was absolutely loved by his father. Despite all that Absalom had as blessings in his life, he was an example of rebellion. Because he became invested in a calling that the Lord didn't in fact assign to him. Oh no. He dreamed of grandeur instead of practicing sacrifice. He left a structure as a legacy instead of a sacrificial model. We actually have a picture. This is in Israel to this day. You can go to Jerusalem. You can find this. You can see this and see a monument to Absalom. You know what they call it? Absalom's monument. Exactly as the word of God says that it is. What he meant to show off his greatness is a great warning. It's a great thing for us to consider and for us to, uh, to get down in our heart about this. That this was something that was a monument to himself and not to the way of life that the Lord had for him. With that in mind, we want to compare it with another story in the Word. This comes from Second Chronicles 24, and we're going to pick up in verse 20. Keeping in mind the picture of Absalom's monument. Second Chronicles 24 and verse 20. Then the Spirit of God came upon Zechariah, son of Jehoiada, the priest. He stood before the people and said, This is what God says. Why do you disobey the Lord's commands? You will not prosper. Because you have forsaken the Lord, He has forsaken you. But they plotted against him, and by order of the king, they stoned him to death in the courtyard of the Lord's temple. King Joash did not remember the kindness Zechariah's father, Jehoiada, had shown him, but killed his son. Killed who? His son. Who said, as he lay dying, may the Lord see this and call you to account. Let's compare this with Absalom. Zechariah, like Absalom, was loved by his father. Zechariah, like Absalom, was articulate. Zechariah, unlike Absalom, laid down his life, ambition, desires for glory, and a bloody sacrifice. I want to show you Zechariah's monument, his tomb. That is right there in the center of the screen with the pyramid-shaped dome. It has Hebrew writing on it from the time of Zechariah. He left behind something. But what he left behind is clearly a memorial to a sacrificial bloody model. He preached the word of the Father. How important is that? At the cost of his life. Let it begin to roll around in your mind as the pastors continue to explain this. One man left a monument to his ambition. The other man left a monument... To a sacrifice. Let's go to Luke 11. When we're looking at this picture, we reflect on Jesus often walked right by this very structure as he went from the Temple Mount 
toward the Mount of Olives. In light of that, we pick up in verse 47 of Luke 11. And let's put this together. Woe to you because you build tombs for the prophets. And it was for your forefathers, and it was your forefathers who killed them. So you testify that you approve of what your forefathers did. They killed the prophets and you build their tombs. Because of this, God in his wisdom said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and others they will persecute. Therefore, this generation will be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets that has been shed since the beginning of the world. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, this generation will be held responsible for it all. Man, we miss so many things by not being aware of the Jewish heritage of these scriptures, of what they were saying. The idea of from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah. What this passage is giving us, it's going from the first murder that was in the Torah. In the very beginning in Genesis, we see the first murder. And because of the arrangement of the Hebrew Scripture, the Torah, the Navim, then the Ketuvim. And at the end of the Ketuvim in the order would have been Second Chronicles. And at the end of Second Chronicles, we see the very last murder recorded in the Tanakh. From the first murder to the last murder in the Tanakh, we see this picture here. This is what this passage is teaching us. It's what it's saying to us. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah. But think about it. The invested assumption is that the people already think they understand. The men who killed Zechariah, they thought they were doing the Lord a service. They thought that they were doing something to help promote what was going on. They thought, they had assumptions that led them literally to murder. The invested assumption that a people already understands God's will caused them to temporarily miss what His will in fact was. Zechariah was bringing a warning. He was bringing help to them. And they murdered the messenger. I'm just caught in a moment of thinking how many times I've murdered a messenger who came and brought me help. He was actually bringing me a word from the heavens, a divinely inspired word. No, I didn't do it physically. This is not a confession in that way. But I sure have done it in my thoughts. I sure have done it by putting their character down. Who are they to tell me? They don't even have their own life right. How are they going to tell me and teach me? Man, I, I wish, I sure wish they would have said that better. They could have said it nicer. I sure, that must not be right because they came from the wrong spirit. Man, I've had all kinds of assumptions. Murderous assumptions. How many times does that happen, let's say, in a worship service where you've been here at the altar and someone's given you a word? You were asking the Lord for direction and insight, but the word that came was a, a word calling to repentance. And between here and your seat, you murdered that person in your own heart. It's time for us to get rid of these embedded assumptions. I want to show you something that unless you've been there, you may not understand this perspective. But we promised you that looking at the people of Israel, looking at the geography of Israel, looking at the plan for Israel that we've been included in, you were going to learn some things today. Would you show the next picture, please? 
these two buildings that are circled. On the right is righteous Zacharias' tomb. On the left, where all problems are, is the monument to selfishness that Absalom left. I want you to consider that this view at this moment is with the eastern gate or the entrance to the temple immediately at your back. In other words, every time Jesus left the temple complex, he was standing at a choice between two lifestyles. One that was self-exalting and prideful and uncorrectable that would be defined by rebellion and one that was a righteous son who would carry out the word of his father and die for it at the very hands of the people that he was trying to help. Jesus saw this every time he crossed the Kidron Valley. Anytime you ever read that he was at Lazarus or Mary or Martha's house, he walked right past this. On his way to Gethsemane, he walked right past this. Saints, I think we need to consider how close selfish ambition and sacrifice live to each other. I think we need to consider that because there's a problem with it in this room. Do you really want to be used any way that God can use you? Or do you want to be used in the one way that you believe you should be used? And if pastors can't direct you in that, who could? Well, I'm waiting for the voice of the Father. Who do you think it would come through? See, we need to be careful that in all of our liberty to hear from God, we don't rule out the primary ways in which God speaks to his people. Doesn't that make sense? You know... I know when I look at Curtis Carter, his life is supposed to be a ministry launching home. That's, that's, I know that. I'm certain that God has said it. When I look at the law huns, I know for sure that Rick is to assist in building this body and that he cannot do it without his beautiful wife. I know that. If the men of God in your life are speaking to you about purpose and function. Be very careful that you have not ascribed for yourself a function that God didn't give you. And you can bring me 37 prophecies from 100 places if you want. And you know why it doesn't matter to me? Because in this house, I figure he will speak to those he put in charge of it. Does that make sense? I love that you prophesied in my children. It means something to me because you're in the body. But 100 Christians prophesying from... Uh, Toronto or the left coast of the United States or wherever they can drag these guys in from really does not overrule a father's word for his children. Okay, We have a special relationship in here. And what we're trying to do is get you to boil things down to what you know for sure God said to you, not what you've deduced, because some of your deductions are wrong. And we've been trying to free you from it, and you've become frustrated with us. A monument to sacrificial, selfless son who died proclaiming his father's will is on the right. A monument to selfish ambition is on the left. Jesus was within view of these two structures representing choices that look, they feel like they're only feet apart. But they lead down paths that are miles apart and end up in kingdoms that are worlds apart. Do you see how close righteousness and wickedness can dwell together? Turn with me to Hebrews 5, and we're going to just drive home the point today because our goal is freedom. Mm -hmm. 
The best thing that you can do when you recognize that you have gotten something wrong is admit it. Best thing you could do. The more public, the better. When men proclaim things, when they stand and say, God has said, and they turn out to be wrong, but they don't admit it, they do it again and again and again and again. God called me here. No, God called me here. No, God called me there. They get a new five-year plan every 18 months. I've watched this kind of immaturity even in men that we've ordained. God will work it out the same way that Abraham was ordained. And he worked it out in Abraham. God knows that he's working it out in me as well. We do not just stand and proclaim truth from a pulpit. We also let you see our life our doctrine and our progress that you can watch closely to examine and see whether it's a life you want to imitate. We are growing and there are some things we've not gotten right. I aimed everybody that I met at fivefold ministry because that's what I am. Found out in the years to come, that's not an appropriate goal for everyone. So many of you are sitting there with this tension like, I want to minister, but I also have to work. And work becomes the enemy of your ministry. Something God never said. When in reality, your work is working out something in you. And they're not at war with each other, but you believe they are. And if you could just get rid of your work. I'm trying. I am trying. I'm telling you that if you have a fault in your life, it probably originated with me. But I'm growing and I'm demanding that you grow with me. Hey, let's go to Hebrews 5.11. I can't let you take credit for all that. It's, all, it's both of us as well. Amen. We have much to say about this. Now, the we here, by the way, happens to be a Greek-speaking Jew. Okay? Some of the most beautiful Greek in, in the Bible is actually in the book of Hebrews. Go figure. God likes these kind of things. And uh, it's likely because he was a diaspora Jew. Everybody wants this to be Paul, and I don't want to get into that argument because it's wrong. Um, (laughs) My point here is that when he says, we have much to say about this, and he begins to teach, they were people that wherever they lived in the world came right past the structures we're talking about three times a year. There are people that their very language lends itself To an understanding that you and I strain at. In other words, they were designed to receive the word of God. Okay? Like natural branches on a natural tree with natural roots. You and I, contrary to nature, have been put in that tree. So some things are a little tough for us. If the natural branches struggle with what I'm going to tell you. How much more do you think the unnatural branches will? We have much to say about this, but it is hard to explain because you are slow to learn. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk being still a, how Radu say it? Titty baby? I think that's a Romanian word that means immature child. I'm not sure personally. Yeah, look it up. It's good. Is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature. Now you're going to think you understand what this next phrase means because you've heard us harp on it for years. But I need you to wipe that slate clean and try to listen to it in several translations one more time. Who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. That does not just mean memorizing the word. It means that you are constantly going back over what God 
has said to you, and you're looking at choices that you recognize are kingdoms apart, but they're standing feet apart, and you're asking God to engage you, to help you get this right. Now, I said you, 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 you. But the people that he's writing to saw their movements in terms of community, not singularity. So when I'm saying get it right for you, understand you're not independent of your brother on the left and the right. I'm not suggesting going the wrong way with the crowd when they're going the wrong way. You need a courage of conviction about what God has said to you. And the difference between that and toxic independence, dying for unity, as Nolan said, is when the whole community is moving in a direction and because of what you think you already know, you just will not listen. See, that's not good for anybody. Okay? If you feel singled out in here, I want you to understand, not to alleviate the pressure on you, this is many families in here. Not one or two, many. I'm telling some of you flat-footed, you are not five-fold ministry, you're telling me I know that I'm a pastor. Well, you can go get ordained online or something because it's, it's not going to happen. If you reject the call of God on your life for the one that you want, you will suffer what the first century leadership suffered. If you embrace the call of God that is on your life, then you will uh, experience the glorious results of the men of God that we're reading about. We have to get this right. And we're working at getting it right. Let's look at the same scripture in the NASB to get a little bit different angle. Let me hear it, Rick. Okay, that's what I thought. But solid food is for the mature who, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. I want to highlight something real quick when it comes to embedded assumptions. Every single person in this room has had some facet of your life that has repeatedly come up over and over again that God has had to discipline and correct. It always has maybe one or two degrees of difference each time. But it's that same thing that trips you up over and over and over again. And when you're, when you look forward, you're like, oh, okay, I'm past this. I've matured past this. Uh, I'm no longer identified with what has tripped me up for so many years. But the way that it needs to be viewed and going back to what Pastor Eric was saying earlier, it's not just a knowledge of scripture or a, just a revelation to share with a group of people. It is what has God personally spoken to you that is authentically him and no other attachments to it let's let his word divide our soul and spirit let's let his word judge the thoughts and attitudes over our heart and every time that it comes up you're getting the wonderful blessed opportunity to practice having your senses trained to discern between two as pastor gets ready to read this in the amplified let's just be real with each other how many of you have boldly thought that you heard from God in an area and it turned out to be flatly wrong. I have. Me too. That could create extraordinary insecurity in you. Or you could move forward in faith. But when you move forward in faith, what are you trusting in? What he has said to you, not what you've presumed. The solution to this riddle is admitting that he did not actually say what you said he said. Otherwise, he's capricious and not to be trusted. Do you understand that? I I know exactly what it is to look at a woman and prophesy that you're going to have a boy and she has a girl. I I, I say, oh, well, she eventually had a boy. 
I, I get it. I get it. And if that makes you feel better, great. That's not what you said. Okay. Prophesying they'll all be born naked is a safer choice. Okay. Now, what I'm getting at here is not harping on a particular decision. I'm saying we have to be careful about getting embedded in something and not being able to be unwrenched from it. Yeah. Fortunately, when the child's born, you're unwrenched from it, right? You, uh, there's no way around that. The problem is, is with lingering ministry, marriage, children, business goals that God doesn't have for you, but you have for yourself. Yeah. That's the problem. And it keeps you from engaging in the beautiful thing that is right in front of you. We all know that if you stand flat-footed and say, God is going to give me a girl, and instead you get a boy, it would be wrong to set that boy aside and go look for the girl somewhere. You know that would be wrong. You would be denying the blessing God did give you. We know that you can feel that. Do not set aside what God has put in front of you for the thing that you think you want and your pastors are telling you is wrong for you to want in the first place. Yeah. Thank you, honey. Thank you. You know, I'm trying to save you years of grief in my own life. What do you think I thought when the Lord told me I would be like one of the men in the Bible? What do you think I thought? I saw what I saw on TV. Yeah. When he told me that Matthew was going to lead worship and had, it doesn't matter, that Matt had an amazing, extraordinary call. You know what I thought? The examples that I saw when he spoke to me and told me that Wade was a pastor. He told me that clearly. And I fought for these men for that and for myself. But what I envision that looking like is different than the way that God has actually done it. I was not capable of envisioning it. I envisioned it based on what I had already experienced at that point. Okay. Now that we understand more, our vision has to be able to shift to what God said and eliminate what we added or extrapolated. I'd like to not let my brother sit in the mud all by himself on this one. About 18 months ago, during a foundations meeting, uh, I stood up and I said that me and my wife were going to try and conceive and have a baby. And it was, it was joyous. I think around that same time, also prophesied to Daniel and Randy that they would have a son. And praise God, that worked out. I felt... 50-50s <laughs> like a coin, you know? It's good average. Right. It'll be a boy or a girl. Because anyway, that's a whole other conversation. So anyway, I was, I was feeling, you know, on a roll in the moment. And so I stepped out there and I just boldly proclaimed that me and my wife were going to start pursuit of having a child and going for a boy. Well, time would tell, but more importantly, God began to just put it right in my face that I was getting to a point of leading my wife in an embedded assumption. And it left nothing but harm and, and scarring between us that he's also had to heal. This is a moment of vulnerability that I want you to take note of and as an example that we don't treat prophecy lightly, but also we don't jump up and make rash vows. Because they not only hurt me, they not only not hurt her, it hurts the way that we function as pastors in this church. And so that's a responsibility for me to take and admit to publicly here in front of you and you know on YouTube or wherever else this message goes. But may we serve as an example for you. Don't invest in assumptions attached to God's will. Pastor is turning now to... Uh... Hebrews 5 in the Amplified. We've 
given these examples as children, I want you to clearly understand something. I am not talking about children. Not at all. I am not talking about somebody saying they're going to have a girl and have a boy. Somebody said they have two more kids and they quit after. I'm not talking about that at all. I'm talking about what is being birthed from your life. That is clearly what I'm talking about. What we believe we are aiming at is the adjustment of your expectation for the work product of your life. Could anything be more? Mark Twain said there's two important days in a man's life. The day that he is born and the day that he finds out why. Now, what happens if that second day is a misunderstanding? Yeah. I want to fix it for you today. Man, that's good. Hebrews 5.14 in the Amplified says this. But solid food is for full-grown men. Yeah! Yeah! Well, we're trying hey, Daniel, to... give us an amen, man. <laughs> yeah, full-grown man! <laughs> he, was, he was doing that on behalf of Zadok, who is already a full-grown man. <laughs> but solid food is for full-grown men. For those whose senses and mental faculties are trained by practice... To discriminate and distinguish between what is morally good and noble and what is evil. And contrary either to divine or human law. What you're hearing us doing today is to talk and to share things from our lives. Is to share personal examples that we have that said, yeah, we tried and we were wrong. This, we did not do it right. We said it this way and it was wrong. (laughs) I'm looking at my beautiful daughter, Anna, here on the front row. You know that they're seven years apart from Olivia to Anna? Seven. You know what that means? That means we were intending to be done. <laughs> seven. Two and a half. Seven. We got a boy and a girl. We told everybody we're done. See, we had so many assumptions. We weren't even as godly as these guys who had a word that they were at least trying to fulfill. We were like, no, I think we're done. Until the Lord spoke and we were like, oh, Lord, we are wrong in every way. And we have the most beautiful, joyful little girl. Amen. What we're trying to do is let you be full grown men and women here in this place. Amen. We're trying to show you that we've had tons of mistakes and we openly share them with you so that you can get rightly trained to distinguish, by practicing to discriminate and distinguish. It takes a full-grown man who's been trained and trained himself as Deuteronomy 30 taught us earlier in this sermon. It must take full maturity in each of us. When we're thinking of Deuteronomy 30, that seems like a long time ago. It was an hour and 14 minutes ago. Deuteronomy 30 and verse 20 told us to love the Lord our God. I want to reiterate to you. You have to love him more than the embedded assumption. In other words, if God removes it from your life, will you love him any less? If you thought you were a biblical teacher on par with whoever it is that you esteem, and it turns out that that is not the case, does that affect how you view the Lord? Because then you've made it idolatrous before the Lord. The second thing from Deuteronomy 30 and verse 20 was listen to his voice. You need to listen to his voice more than what you're already invested in or else you can never learn anything new. And how would he ever correct you? I tell you, I was not prepared for what Miss Joe prophesied today. I mean, that was crushingly accurate. Now, when I told Joe that, 
We find out we need our hearts circumcised is what we find out. The third thing from Deuteronomy 30.20, to repeat it for you and hope you remember it, is hold fast to Him. He is what we hold fast to, not what we think He will do through us or for us. Don't make an idol out of your assumption. Don't do it. Okay? Then when choices are feet apart and seem equally valid, When deception makes our assumptions seem appropriate. When we are moving towards rebellion while proclaiming his reign as Lord of our life. We can pause and do the following things. To love the Lord more than our assumptions. Listen to his voice, not to those who reinforce our assumptions. Third, hold fast to him, not our self-determined outcomes that are now idolatrous turn with me to first kings chapter three as we get ready to close as we move towards a closing here in first kings chapter three and verse nine we have a prayer that solomon prays that has been one of the most moving prayers in the whole bible for me for a long time in first kings chapter three and verse nine it says this so give your servant a discerning heart To govern your people. And to distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? Mm. Um, I so appreciate that Solomon prayed this. And I can't tell you how many thousands of times that I've prayed this. Give your servant a discerning heart. If you've ever been a person who actually asked me what you could pray for about me, do you know what I say almost every time, 100% of the time? I need discernment. I don't care that someone find me to be discerning. I care about discernment because it matters to God's people. Yeah. It matters to my family. It matters to my covenant partners. God, out of all the things that you can give me, Would you please give me a discerning heart? I cannot govern your people unless you give that to me. That idea in Solomon is what we know that he is rewarded with in wisdom from on high that there's never been another like him. And even with all that that he was given, he still made choices that were really only feet apart. But it produced kingdoms that were divided. Yeah. Give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people. Maybe you don't have the weight of pastorship on your shoulders. Of other churches who look to to these kind of men and, and look for counsel and guidance and wisdom and strength. What about the family that you have now? What about God's people that are there in your own household? Single people, what about the marriage that you need to have so that you might fulfill your purpose? What about the children that are yet to come? 
Lord, give your servants discerning hearts to govern what you put before us. And to distinguish between right and wrong. Look at the question that he ends this passage with. Who is able to govern this great people of yours? You know what the answer is? None of us. Our assumptions disqualify all of us. But when we reach out to the Lord and say, God, I need you to help and give me discernment. I see that I need to be a full grown man now. These are the things that move us that should impact your heart. That you can't just stay here in this church sermon after sermon, altar time after altar time, and never actually mature into what God has for you. And I can tell you I had the wrong assumptions of what I should be in this world. What I thought I would do and where I thought I would go. Praying for a discerning heart has led me to the place that I never want to leave. I have no desires to go anywhere, but my desire, my ongoing desire is to be a discerning leader of God's people. The Apostle Paul said he had learned not to judge anyone according to the flesh. Hebrews 5.14 says, through practice have trained themselves. You know, everybody thinks doctors are right. That's what their lab code and the MD says minor deity to people. But it's called the practice of medicine. Do you know why it's called the practice? Because they are practicing. They've been wrong often. They'll be wrong again. Having said that, they're right more often than they're wrong, which is why you go to them as a doctor. Well, I am practicing this. But there is a reason that you show up here. Make sure that you don't pick the only moment to disagree with us at the time that it matters the most to you. Solomon prayed for a discerning heart, didn't he? Now, we can argue about where Solomon goes, right? Like, as Solomon goes down the road, Solomon gets a little strange. So let's talk about his very first big decision. Is that fair? Two supposed mothers come to him. Do you remember what he does? Well, just like Solomon, who used a sword, we will have to divide between what God is authentically birthing and what was born out of selfish ambition masquerading as the furthering of your calling. See, the the sword is the word of God to you. And you're going to have to engage with the word of God and do surgery on your own heart to see whether or not the baby that is ministry that you're trying to produce is really yours or somebody else's. Okay. Do you care so much about it being done that it's okay if it's not you doing it? Or would you rather it not exist if you can't do it? See, that will help you. That was Solomon's very first test. And the sword made the decision. I'm telling you the word of God will help you understand the motives of your heart. But all the man's ways seem right to him. I never wanted to be in a confrontational ministry. I know it's surprising to you. I I wanted to wear those ugly football coach shorts. That like fit at any weight. I mean, you've noticed like I expand and contract 70, 80 pounds at a time. I can breathe and do that. 
I wanted to teach history because I thought it was like the easiest but still mildly interesting subject. And coach football. That's what I wanted to do. Those were the end, uh, ambitions and aspirations of my life. The, exactly. And when I got born again, I wrote into my Bible, I wanted an apartment. A job where somebody thought I was good at what I did. I literally wrote that. That was important to me. And washer-dryer connections. Okay? Can I tell you, sometimes we're aiming too low, and the Lord will move you up the table. But what if you're aiming high for the sake of aiming high? Then what happens? What would it take for God to change your mind? What would it take for you to see what he did put within your grasp as noble? What would it take for you to be fruitful right where you're planted and not wait to be fruitful in some other place where you'll really be a poisonous weed? Life's full of choices that at least in our own minds seem like they're in line with God's will. They're reinforced by our invested assumptions and they lead us down paths that are kingdoms apart. Speaking of an example in Genesis 19, Lot had to decide to go to the mountains or to go to Zor. And what he chose was producing incestual enemies of God that are still enemies of Israel today. And Acts 8, Simon wanted the Holy Spirit, but he had to choose how to pursue obtaining empowerment. His choice was to use his own strength, his own resources, his own finances to accomplish what seemed to be a good desire. He wanted to be empowered by the Holy Spirit and he thought that he could buy it. Mm. Using our own strength is a terrible, terrible assumption and choice for us to make. Listen, we've seen people that assumed their healing would come a certain way, shocked to find out it comes another way, and disillusioned when they got healed. Now, praise God, they're amazing people, and they've corrected. We're going to have to correct. We're going to have to correct all the way around. Your assumptions are not gospel. What God has said is gospel. Consider that Saul, in 1 Samuel 13, believed that he had no choice He made the assumption that because Samuel didn't come, he had to do this. It needed to be done. And it cost him the entire kingdom. Be very, very careful that we are actually hearing from God and owning up to it when we haven't. In 1 Chronicles 13, we have Uzzah. He had to decide whether to steady the ark or not. This is a split-second decision. That eventually cost him his life. And that we do the same. When we see the things of God begin to stumble. That God's not coming through. We step in to help. But what are we actually doing? We're using the justification of I am helping something become righteous. And I'm actually putting my own life at risk by controlling the presence of God. Wow. Peter in Matthew 16 actually does something really similar if you think about it. He was invested in false assumptions about the Messiah. He had to decide. His decisions were only feet apart. Only verses apart. Upon the revelation that you have, Peter, we're going to build the church. The revelation of who Christ is, is is the foundation of building this church. Get behind me, Satan. 
Only feet apart, only verses apart, and Peter had to decide. It's the same thing that we have to decide today. Are we going to hold on to our assumptions and be labeled as one who is working against Christ himself? Are we going to let the revelation of who he is become foundational for us in this place? We had planned to share three more psalms with you, but I don't think it's necessary. I want to share one picture with you, okay? Could we put that on the screen? When you're looking at this, you are literally looking across the Kidron Valley. When you look across the Kidron Valley, all of those white stones, those are tombs where people for thousands of years have been buried because Zechariah said Messiah would return there. And of course, the Gospel of Luke and the Gospel of Acts affirm Messiah will return there. So Jewish and Christian hope have been in a physical resurrection in this place. The graves are still there because the resurrection has not yet taken place. That ought to be patently obvious. Having said that, staring across that valley at the sight of the resurrection, how awe-inspiring would it be to stand there and to look at it and know that this is the spot Jesus is returning. This is the spot the, the dead will rise. How awe would you like to do it? Who in here would like to do that? On the right side of the screen begins the Hinoan Valley. That is the place that is translated Gehenna in the New Testament, where Jesus said, the canker worm will never die. Hell is like that place. Look how close they are. The site of the resurrection and the site of the one place on the planet that is like hell are next door to each other. Can I tell you, good intentions... And God's intentions for your life are as close as those things. But one is hell and the other is the kingdom of God. Your good intentions mean nothing. Nothing. You will be called an evil doer by God himself if you rely on the nobility of your own heart. Which of course the Bible says you don't have. We have to return to a place where we say, Lord, you said we're shimming the foundation. Lord, we heard message after message about getting our foundation. Lord, help me with the very foundation of my life, my family, my ministry, because now is time to get it right. Can you hear what we're saying? We don't take this lightly. We want you to stand to your feet. We're going to worship a little bit together. We are told to consider Jerusalem, the way that it's built. We're told to consider the temple, the way that it's built. We're told to look at God's people throughout the Word. That's what we're doing is we are showing you what we have seen in the Word. And what we're asking you to do is use it as a mirror to see what you see in your own heart based on the Word. Is there something that needs to die? Is there something that needs to be reevaluated? Do you have a stone in your spiritual shoe you just can't get in step with everybody? Are you sure that it's not pride? Now is a time for us to get this right. If a pastor has sat with you and specifically said, I think you should consider this, and you were dumb enough to shake it off, we are trying to reach you. And there's more than one of you, which is why we're doing it publicly. I've been stubborn in my life. That's how I get things accomplished. Knowing the difference between being stubborn about what God has said and what you have presumed God said 
is very difficult. It's often embarrassing publicly. I want to encourage you to get things right with the Lord. Let people know that you got it right. If you've been running around building unity based on negativity, you better go get that right. Because God himself is able to reform his house. He's able to reform it. And we love you. We are invested in your success. And we want to build rightly so that no stones have to be removed. I believe that we got a word from an elder today. A tongue and an interpretation. All the pastors have been mulling over this word. It is the word for you. The question is, if you're here and God brought you here and he gives you this word, why? Why did he give you the word? If you walk out of this room without being able to answer the question, why that word was for you personally, then you're evading what God is doing inside of this body. This word was not for someone else. It was for you. You better figure out why. Because then you'll be able to go, Thank you, Lord, in the practice of my discernment, I'm growing. Thank you, mighty God, you are revealing to me. And we want that for you. We want that for us too. Wise and discerning hearts. Let's pray.